We thank you for your word. We thank you. The promise is that everything you've written is God-breathed, that every part of the scriptures are profitable and useful for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, that people of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we ask that that's what happens in our lives today as we read and contemplate the great story of the Exodus, that great work you did in establishing the nation of Israel as the people of God, your treasured possession. Speak to us for our lives today, we pray. I ask that you help me to be flowing with what you want to say so that I can give your heart voice today. I pray for each of us to be able to hear what you want us to hear. And I pray you do that miracle that you do sometimes and often with preaching where somehow everyone in the hearing of the preaching of the word gets something from you unique for them right from the throne of God. Do that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So a lot of you were with me two weeks ago when I began and we did a quick review of how the Exodus works. I said Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Of course, it's a sequel then to the first book of the Bible. There's an ongoing story. And probably a lot of you know, but just in case you don't know, um, there was a man named Abraham who was a friend of God. God sought him out and befriended him and said, Abraham, I got some news for you. I am going to make you a father of many nations. Abraham was an old man with no children, so this was a good promise. And especially in the Middle East or the Near East, the Middle East, in his time and day, having no children was not a joyful thing. Having children and a legacy was very important. So it was a good promise. And God said to Abraham, you're going to have a child by your old wife, Sarah. You guys are going to have a miracle baby. You're going to then have multitudes of children that's going to become a nation. But your offspring are going to go into um, Egypt and be mistreated and be slaves for 400 years. Then they will come out. Can you imagine hearing a prophecy about your offspring for 400 years into the future? Then they will come out and I will give them this promised land. And they will take possession of it. Because... The people that live here right now are sinful, wicked, evil people. And I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. I know them, though, and I know the future, and I know they won't. So at that time, your children will be a nation, will come in, and they will execute my judgment on these people. Interesting. That's how all those wars that you read about in the Old Testament came about. It was the acts of God bringing judgment against wickedness that was hurting this world. Remember, when you get troubled by that, if you do, that everyone started as offspring of Adam and Eve. Everyone started out in the family of those who knew God. And slowly but surely, people turned their backs on God until entire nations and people groups were worshiping demonic gods and doing all manner of evil. That I don't have time to describe right now, but maybe we'll get to that at some point. So, it happened. And in the first, chapters, uh, first chapter of Exodus, we discover that 350 years have passed since the great-grandson of Abraham has been a savior to the world, Joseph, went from slavery and prison to the second, hand, second, second man to the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, and with great wisdom and great insight from the Spirit of God, helped prepare for a coming drought that would last seven years. Uh, 
and they stored up food in abundance for seven years. The drought came, and people were saved, and because of that event, Joseph, Jacob, his father, all his brothers and family, 70 in all, became uh, people that lived in a place called Goshen in Egypt. Now, 350 years later, there's about three million of them, and the pharaoh that's currently the king doesn't know anything about Joseph, and he's very frightened about all these Israelites. There's a lot of them. They're strong people. And he's nervous that one day they'll rise up against him. So he says, let's make slaves out of these people. And they begin to set up taskmasters and they use these people to build their cities. And um, that's not enough. He gets even more scared because they keep getting stronger no matter how much they're oppressed. So he says, let's kill all of the boys. We cannot have these people become a massive army someday. So he institutes a law that says, if you have a boy, you need to throw him in the Nile River. And of course, they're not doing that. So then he tells his soldiers, you go and you kill any boy that's under two years old. That's where Moses is born. That's how the first part of Exodus starts out. Moses is a guy who's going to be God's chosen man to deliver, to lead out this massive group of people, currently slaves, out of Egypt, into the promised land that he promised to Abraham. They're going to become the people of God, a nation through whom the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. If I've lost you, take a breath and listen to this phrase. The promise to Abraham was, your offspring will be blessed and they will be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. That was the plan. So now God is going to make that plan come to reality. That's why we're reading the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is also interesting to us because it's where we begin to have the first images of the kingdom of God. It is in the, well, pretty soon in Exodus as they come out and go through the Red Sea. Remember that story? The Red Sea goes dry like a, almost a bridge. They walk through the Red Sea, this millions of people. They get to the other side. The Egyptian army comes chasing them, wanting to kill them. God causes the water to close over them. And the enemies of the people of God and of God himself are destroyed. And they worship and they praise and they sing. And at that point, they say, the Lord reigns forever and ever. He shall reign in this language of the kingdom of God, a king who reigns, a king who comes in judgment against the oppressor to set the people free, begins to be established. And of course, in our time, we know the story of Jesus who comes saying the kingdom of God is here and he, the king, comes at war against the oppressor, Satan himself, the one behind all of oppression, and defeats him at the cross. And the kingdom of God is established and is being established And that's what the New Testament is all about. Therefore, what we're reading here is applicable to that. And what we're hoping to discover is principles for our lives, understanding of who God is, how he works, and how we respond by reading these ancient stories. You with me? Okay, that's where we're going. So, Exodus 2.23, during that long period, oh, I didn't say enough. Moses is 40 years old now. He's grown up. Yeah, I have to back up just a little bit. So they're going to kill the babies. The mother of Moses takes her little baby Moses, puts him in a little ark that she's woven together, a basket, and puts it in the very Nile River that was meant to destroy the babies, and it becomes not his vehicle of destruction, but his vehicle of salvation. And she puts the baby in this ark, goes out into the River Nile. The daughter of the king is bathing, sees the baby, collects him, 
falls in love with him and adopts him, and he becomes a prince in Egypt. He grows up, and about 40 years later, starts to take matters into his own hand when he sees Egyptian taskmasters abusing Israelites, his own people. He steps in and murders an Egyptian taskmaster. It's discovered, and he has fear that Pharaoh is now going to kill him, so he runs to the desert for safety. In the desert, he meets a guy named Jethro and his daughters and marries one of them and becomes a shepherd working for his father-in-law. And that's where we start in this chapter. It's 40 years later. Moses is an old man. And I'm calling this section Preparation in the Desert. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God remembers. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God is concerned about the suffering of people. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And just note that it's 40 years. Moses has been far from being a deliverer. He's a shepherd, and he doesn't even have his own sheep. He's working for his father-in-law because he can't, get, can't even get a job on his own. He's not in a great place. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? He's far from the promise. And for you and me, I want you to know that it may seem like God has forgotten you. It may seem that God has forgotten his promises. It may seem that God has forgotten his call. If that's the case, know two things. One, you're probably in a desert place. And two, God has not forgotten. Not his promise, not his call, not his purpose. He won't forget that. Um, Moses is doing the ordinary, the mundane, the faithful work that he should be doing. And very often when we read the stories of people that become major leaders, the stories of the Bible brings to us People who work for God, who work with God, who do great acts of righteousness and justice and salvation and healing and deliverance, very often they're, they're just in the normal place being faithful, hardworking people when God breaks into their life and calls them to his ultimate purposes. That's the case for David when he was just a boy shepherd, overlooked. That's the case for Elisha. He was plowing with oxen when Elijah came and threw his cloak on him and he became the next prophet of God. He wasn't just plowing a field. There were 12 pairs of oxen plowing. That meant each one of those guys had a plow behind a pair of oxen. And Elisha was the last guy. He was the 12th. So he was really in no man's land when God called him. Um, Peter, John, and James. Peter, James, and John, those major disciples and leaders of the church of Jesus Christ, they were unknown fishermen, probably illiterate. They were faithful people doing the work that God called them to do, and God blessed them. Um, let me just read part of Psalm 139 to you. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even darkness will be not dark to you. See, when you're in a desert place, you're not hidden from God. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. What I'm emphasizing here is God created you. God has a plan for you. God knows you. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together. What beautiful, beautiful poetic language to describe the creation of a human being in his, in his or her mother's womb. Your eyes saw my armformed body. Listen to this. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has ordained days for you and for me before they've come to be. And the days that he has ordained will come to pass because God is sovereign. He doesn't forget and he's not out of control. No matter what happens in the world, no matter what people do, God has not forgotten the particular days he's ordained for you, and that was the case with Moses. God has a plan for you, and God has a plan for the world. Paul wrote about it in Ephesians. I put that in your notes too, and I want to read that to you. He has a a plan for the world, and everything works out in conformity with his plan. Pharaoh is about to see God work Pharaoh's life, even Pharaoh's own stubbornness, out in conformity with God's plan to glorify himself in all the world. But if you wonder what God's will is for the world, here it is. He made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ. It's going to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, which is when Jesus Christ himself returns and sits on his glorious throne on this earth. And here's God's will to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. That's where history's going. And there, there will be people who um, willingly, joyfully submit their lives to Jesus and join his cause and live in the fullness of his righteousness, joy and peace, provision, forgiveness, healing, all the goodness of his kingdom. There will be people who resist him, but ultimately everyone will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can choose today to bow to him or you will have it chosen for you later. I suggest you choose now. <laughs> And it will be more joyful for you. Um, So what happened in the desert? Well, God was preparing Moses. Remember, he was a bit prideful. He thought he could take matters into his own hands. He thought he could help God along. And he killed a guy. He did it his own way. And he needed to learn some lessons in humility. And that's what happens when you're put in the desert place. And you stay faithful to God you learn humility. I, I love what um, John Maxwell, major leader pastor in the body of Christ for years, wrote this, God prepares leaders in a crock pot, not a microwave oven. More important than the awaited goal is what God does in us while we wait. More important what's going to happen with Moses, what he's, Moses is going to do is what God did in Moses during the desert. He's preparing him to be the deliverer. Waiting deepens and matures us, levels our perspectives and broadens our understanding. Have anyone experienced that? When I was, some of you know the story, but I'll just say it briefly. When I was 14 or 15 years old at that time of life, it was time to decide what will you do for a career, or think about it at least, make a decision what you'll do in college and all that. And I was a kid who loved the church, I loved Jesus, I loved worship, and I thought that I'd probably like to be a pastor. And so I talked to the Lord because I knew that I couldn't choose to that. I had read Moses' story and I knew it's not good to decide to do what you want to do on your own. It doesn't work out well. So I asked the Lord, could I go to Bible college and learn to be a pastor? And he didn't say yes. So I didn't. And I went and was, in a sense, in a good desert for a long time. And many years later, at least 
double my life at that time, when I was 30, God came to me like a burning bush, like Moses is about to have happen, and said, now, I'm calling you into full-time ministry. And those years weren't wasted, but they were preparation in computer science of all things. So I was a computer programmer. Then God brought me in and called me. Very quickly, he made it happen, and I ended up being a pastor. And that's why you have to listen to me this morning. (laughs) That's my short version. I'll tell you the long story another way, but I can relate to this. Dallas Willard, I've quoted this recently. I love this. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. This is so true and so important for you and me. I'm talking as a man who wants to make disciples right now. And I want you to know, disciples of Jesus Christ, the most important thing is not what you do, it's who you become. It's what God does in you. If you don't become what God wants you to become, then what you do won't be very good. But if you become what God wants you to become, then when you do what God wants you to do, you'll be able to do it fully with integrity. So it's very important that God works in us. So, verse 2, there, the other side of the desert, the 40 years, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, hmm, I'll go over and see that strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. Listen to this sentence. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, I think there might be a lesson for us that there are times in our life when God does something to get our attention. And if he doesn't get our attention and we don't notice, he doesn't call us. But if we'll stop and pay attention to what God is doing around us, step aside to investigate and listen, he might just call my name. This happens to me regularly in life when something happens like the guy at the gas station that said to me, I am so sorry to bother you, but I don't have any money for this tank of gas, and here's my car, and could you help me? And I go, hmm, should I keep rolling or should I step aside to look and see? I've had it happen where I've gone, stepped aside, and talked with the person, and God said to me, this one has your name on it. I want you to give them some gas and start talking. Kind of like the burning bush. Suddenly God's speaking, and I'm in the game, and we have a holy hello. This is how you do holy hellos. You step aside to look and ask God, are you doing something right now in this situation? And he takes that normal hello, turns it into a holy hello, just like this bush became a holy bush. Are you with me? You pay attention to what God's doing around your life. Step aside and ask, is there something here for me? Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That might be a little strange for us. Maybe you've been in someone's house where a sign of reverence is you take your shoes off. That was definitely the way they do it here. I've been in churches where they do this. I went to a mosque once and the, and the, um, the Muslims have reverence for their worship by taking their shoes off. So that's what's happening here. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's connecting Moses with his past heritage, with the promises that Moses has probably heard about a people who would become the people of God. 
At this, Moses hid his face. He understood it was God, and he thought, you know, you can't look at God or you're going to die. So he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into the good and spacious land, the land flowing of milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all those ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen that the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now you go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is the pattern to this day of how things work. Jesus, until he returns, is at work in the world. God sees oppression, and he calls people like you and me to join him to people, deliver people out of their oppression. He delivers us from our oppressors, from Satan himself, brings us into his kingdom. We work with him, we serve him, and then the day comes he says, I want to help them, go help them. I want that one to know my truth, go tell them. I want that one to be healed, go heal them. I want that one to be encouraged. Go encourage them. You see how that works? So this is a picture of the, the king, the victorious king, the warrior king who's about to do battle against the oppressor. This is the language that Peter used about Jesus. In Acts 10, Peter's talking to a group of Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. It's worth reading at another time, but here's the one sentence I want you to hear. Peter says, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Then Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Did you follow me there? Jesus understood and Peter understood that Jesus' ministry was a ministry not only of rescuing people, but a ministry of war against the oppressor. For this reason, John, the beloved, will write in his letter, was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the evil one. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. So we are in the same kind of role. God calls people to himself, then he calls us to kingdom service, then he sends us in partnership with his ministry of salvation and deliverance. I'm looking at your faces, and you're doing good. Okay, so Colossians, listen to Paul's words. Colossians, this is kingdom language, reflective of what the Israelites are going through, for our understanding, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Hear the language of Exodus? He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Next thing I want to point out from what we just read is that God is not far away and disconnected from the problems on this earth. He sees, he's concerned, and he breaks into history to help people. The kingdom of God is a break-in kingdom. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. He doesn't stay aloof far away, but he enters right into our pain, right into our situation 
with provision, with salvation, with deliverance. That's why when I walk into a relationship with someone and they tell me their pain and their trouble, I can with confidence say, I think God would like to help you. Because of the Exodus story and because of Jesus' words when he said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. So I can say to you, you got a problem? You're hurting? I think God wants to help you. The kingdom of God is here. Could I pray with you? And you might say yes, and I'll invite the presence of God to come and minister to your need, and he will. And we just had another holy hello, and it's happy. He's not disconnected. So listen to these words from what God said to Moses. I have indeed seen the misery of the people. I have heard them crying out. I'm concerned, so I've come down to rescue them. And the part that we might not like, so I'm sending you. I've seen, I've heard, I'm concerned, I've come to rescue them, so you go. I don't know if you're getting it. God sees, he hears, he's concerned, he's come to rescue somebody, so now you go. See, that's how it works. That's how it works, and you might just hear the call of God in your burning bush experience, I don't know, this afternoon. We'll see. Well, Moses... is a reluctant deliverer, and he argues with God five different times in this passage. Five times. Not smart to argue with God. And at the end of it, he runs out of arguments, and God gets mad at him. But you want to go some more? Okay. Argument number one. We'll read it, but here's how it goes. Uh, Who am I to go against Pharaoh? I've seen. I've heard. I'm concerned. I've come to rescue. So you go to Pharaoh. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? God said, Moses, (laughs) I will be with you. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Moses, I will be with you. It's going to be a sign to you. You're going to bring the people back to right where you're standing right now and you're going to worship. And you'll know it was me which didn't seem very helpful to me. Does that not seem helpful to you? Are you with me? What good is that? That's like far down the road. You worship here. That'll be the sign. I want more of a sign than that. No, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. That's all you need. Remember Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, make disciples of every tribe and tongue, teach them everything I taught you to do. He said that to the disciples and he said this, And remember, I will be with you. That's all we need to really know. I will be with you. But Moses has a second argument. He says, well, suppose I go and uh, they say, well, who sent you? What's his name? What do I do then? God's answer, Moses, I am who I am. I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the ever-present God who's breaking into your situation. Here's the text. Moses said, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. They asked, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I just love, there's like no more. You can't get any farther than that. I just, I exist. I'm the self-existent one. There's no before me. There's no after me. I just am. My name is Yahweh. You've heard the name Yahweh. It means I am. It's a powerful name. (laughs) Say to the Israelites, I am 
has sent me to you. And watch this promise. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, appeared to me. I've watched over you. I've seen what's been done to you. I've promised to bring you up out of your misery into the land of promise. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, so, so you see how it's changed a little bit? You go to Pharaoh, now he says, you're going to go to the elders, all y'all going to go together. That's how it always works, by the way. The body of Christ works together. Usually not a lot of lone rangers. It's always in the context of the community of faith. You're going to go together, you're going to go to uh, the king. You're going to say, the God of Hebrews has met us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices and worship. But I know the king of Egypt. I know he's not going to let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'm going to stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will do. And I will make them so favorably disposed toward you that when you leave, you won't go empty-handed. Every woman's to ask her neighbor, give me some silver, give me some gold, give me some clothing. And you'll put it on your sons and daughters and you're going to plunder the Egyptians. Moses' third argument. I still don't think they're going to believe me <laughs> or listen to me. God says, I'm going to do extraordinary things with the ordinary. So Moses goes like this. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, Moses, what's that in your hand? He says, oh, this is my shepherd's staff. He said, throw it on the ground. Do you know the story? What's going to happen next? He throws it in the ground and turns to a mistake and Moses goes, ah, and runs away. <laughs> so it went down. The Lord then said this, Moses, reach out and take that snake by the tail. I wouldn't have done it unless God was talking and God was. So Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake and turned back into a staff in his hand. What did the snake mean to the Egyptians? Can you picture Pharaoh's rod with that cobra head on it? It was a sign of authority. He's going to take their very sign of authority and wield the authority of God against the Egyptians. That's what's going on there. The Lord said, this is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Moses, take your hand, put it inside your cloak. So Moses did. And when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. And the Lord said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So Moses did. And when he pulled it out, it was restored. The Lord said, if they don't believe the snake thing... They're going to like the hand thing. <laughs> but he said, but if they still aren't listening to you, I got another trick up my sleeve. Take some water out of the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and it's going to turn to blood. Yeah, and you know what's going to happen later on. It's going to take that farther and turn the whole river to blood. But that's not what's going on right now. Now, just, let me just say for you and me, Jesus said... These signs are going to follow them that believe. Have you heard that before? They'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. If they pick up a snake, sounds like Moses, huh? It's not going to harm them. They might have to have poison. It won't hurt them. They'll place their hands on sick people. They'll get well. And then he went up. This is Mark 16. He was taken into heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. And the disciples did go out. And they did preach everywhere, and the Lord did work with them and confirm his word with signs that accompanied it. We're just like this story. So Moses is like, okay, well, those signs are good, but you know what, God? I, I'm not a very good speaker. Please don't make me go. And God says, okay, here's how it goes down. 
Oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to me. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives sight or makes him blind? It is I, the I am who I am. Moses, do you know who you're talking to? I will go and speak, and I will teach you what to say. Remember Jesus said, when you are arrested, don't even worry about what you're going to say, because I'll speak through you, and my spirit will speak through you. Well, Moses has a fifth argument. He goes, basically, I'm out of excuses, but I still don't want to go. Could you please send someone else? Moses said, oh, Lord, please spend someone else to do it. That's chapter 4, verse 13. Well, I believe we're going to get through the whole thing. Can you believe this? The Lord's anger burned against Moses. What are you learning? <laughs> when the Lord asks you to go, just answer the first time go like this. Yes, Lord. Don't argue with the Lord. Guess who wins when you argue with the Lord? The Lord. Guess whose purposes always get accomplished? The Lord. His will is done. He is the sovereign Lord. He works all things together according to the purpose of his will. And it's so much more enjoyable to go walking and standing rather than being drugged by your feet into the purposes of God. I recommend you just say yes, Moses ended up going. So the Lord's anger burned against Moses. He said, well, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, by the way. And his heart's going to be glad when he sees you. You just tell him and put words in his mouth. I'll help both of you speak, teach you what to do. He'll speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were like God telling him what to say, like I'm trying to do with you right now. But take the staff. Don't forget your staff, Moses. Take the staff in your hand. Because you're going to do some miraculous signs with that staff. And, man, it's going to be a traveling works and wonders and signs show with this staff. I mean, it's going to be great to watch. If you don't know this story, you might want to read Exodus. Or go rent the movie The Prince of Egypt. Or if you're old school and you don't mind 1950s acting, go rent The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston as Moses. Because it's kind of cheesy, but it's still really good. It's 1950s. Final word. Why don't you stand up? And as you're standing up, listen to this. God is accomplishing his purposes for the world. He's calling ordinary people to partner with him. All the while graciously caring for individuals in their suffering and in their hurt and in their oppression. Our part is to serve him faithfully in his mission that's been revealed to all of us in his word. Being ready to respond when he calls us by name to a specific task. The kingdom of God has come upon us. Let us say yes to him. So Lord, I, speaking for my family, say to you, we are your daughters and sons. Let your kingdom now come upon us. We want to see your will accomplished in this world, we want to see everyone who's willing to be set free from the oppressor, Satan. We want to see families restored. We want to see poor people fed. Poor people clothed. Oppression destroyed and justice served. We want to see racism end in our time. 
We want to see your kingdom and your glory. And we say we will serve you. We want to see those without hope enter into hope as the oppressor that has stolen hope is destroyed when Jesus comes into their life. We want to see those who are suffering in illness set free as you send us to bring the healing of God against the oppressor and heal the sick. We want to see joy come to those who are oppressed by depression as you break into their lives with hope and the joy of the Lord. We want to see those who are in distress enter into peace as the Prince of Peace makes his way into their lives. We will go, we want to be like that man Isaiah who saw you and said, I will go send me. I will go send me. So we say, come Lord. Speak to us. We will serve you in the main, in the plain, in the simple, in the obvious. But when we see a burning bush, we'll step aside, wanting to know if you're going to call our name, Moses, Moses. I have seen, I have heard, and I'm concerned. So I've come down to rescue them. Now you go. Let that be our portion, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.